Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working side-by-side with leading scientists to better understand how complex data can be converted into innovative treatments. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about neuropsychology and brain cancer with Dr. Franklin Brown. Dr. Brown is an assistant professor of neurology and chief of the division of neuropsychology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So Dr. Brown, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit about what exactly is neuropsychology and how does that really interface with the world of cancer? So neuropsychology is really the study of cognition, things like memory, attention span, language skills, visual spatial skills, um, intelligence, all these different things that your brain does on a daily basis to basically think and talk and interact So that's basically what the field looks at. Within brain tumors, it's important because it it helps assess the impact of brain tumors on cognition, but we can also use it to predict, in some cases, what might happen if if the tumor is removed, and it also might help guide various methods of removal in some cases. So it, it can help guide the impact of the tumor removal but also help the patient and healthcare providers understand the impact after it happens and also help guide therapies. Yeah. And I can imagine that if somebody is diagnosed with a brain tumor, I mean, just the the concept, the words itself make you think, oh my gosh, what's going to happen to my mind? Uh, You know, uh, am I going to be able to think? Am I going to lose my IQ? Am I going to be able to speak? Uh, um, What does that do? Um, and, And I'd imagine that there are a lot of factors that go into that in terms of where in the brain is this tumor and and uh, what what part of the brain does it affect? Tell us a little bit more about how you do that and how you kind of help patients and clinicians um, get a sense of what this brain tumor uh, is doing and, and what the ramifications of treatment are. So there are, as you can imagine, all kinds of brain types of brain tumors, and they're discovered in this, different ways. One way that my field tends to interact a lot with brain tumors can be from seizures and epilepsy. There are some patients that will randomly start developing seizures, and as part of the workup, they might find a tumor. And in some cases, it might be a very slow-growing tumor, in which case they might watch it for a while, and they may not do anything with it because it might discover that it's been there the patient's whole life or most of their life. And sometimes the 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 resection or the taking out of the tumor might actually put them at risk. Um, so in a slow-growing tumor or in a stable tumor like that, I would, I would, it's it's much more of a, a thoughtful process, and I would evaluate them, and then we would we would test to see, okay, what are the risks going to be in this case? And so in that kind of tumor, it's I'm sure it's scary for the patient to have a tumor, but I think in those cases, the doctors are pretty clear of, well, this might have been there your whole life. We don't know if it's growing. 
we can kind of look at this and, and take our time and, and figure out the next step. So in that kind of situation, I don't, I mean, I'm not, I've not had that happen to me, but I don't imagine it sounds quite as urgent as in cases where there is a, um, a tumor that appears to have grown abruptly. And that can be quite scary for the patients. And so in those cases, there's not the time for me to kind of do a pre-surgical workup and help them figure out the next step. In those cases where the tumor is fast moving, it, I'm sure it's much scarier for people because it's so fast. And many times I cannot help at that point. It's, you know, like, for example, this, the, the surgeon might have to go and operate right away. And so there's not even any time for the patient to process what's about to happen, let alone have them see me to predict what's going to happen. So in those cases, it's much more of a, I'm following up and I'm seeing how they're doing afterwards. But as you can imagine, if it's a fast moving tumor, the patient just wants to know that they're going to live. They're not worried about what I do in most cases. They just want to be okay. Because, you know, the brain tumor, it's got to be a scary thing to hear a doctor say to you. You know, I can't imagine how how fearful that is. But like I said, there's different types and the the more slow growing ones, I'm sure the doctors can describe those in a, in a calmer way than when it's okay, it's a tumor, we have to go and operate tomorrow. I can't imagine how scary that would sound. Yeah. And, and I, I, I would imagine that, um, you know, there's certainly a balance between the symptoms that the brain tumor is causing uh, by being in your brain. So for example, the seizures that you have that may be there on a daily or weekly basis versus the potential um, disabilities that you may have with resection. How, how do you kind of balance that in patients who um, might be thinking about, you know, do I undergo a treatment, whether it's surgery or radiation, Versus, do I live with this tumor? If if they're kind of facing that dichotomy, h- how do you kind of uh, counsel them? So if it's if it's the kind of tumor that you're describing, which is usually the type that's not that they're not going to die imminently if it's not taken out. There are of course cases where there's where they're told like if you don't take this out, that's going to be it. You know, I'm sure that those are the scary ones. But the kind that you're talking about are the ones that we actually have time to maybe evaluate them before surgery. And the way that the testing works is, well, so we'll test different things, like I said, the language and different kinds of memory. And if it turns out that that part of the brain where the tumor's in is not working properly anyways, like let's say the tumor's in the part of the brain that's important for verbal memory. And their verbal memory is terribly impaired at that point. Well, at that point, we could say to them, well, you know, there's very little risk because you're already having a lot of problems here and it's unlikely to get much worse and it might actually get better. In that conversation, the patient can think, oh, okay, well, so this is just causing problems and if he takes it out, it's not going to get much worse. Uh, In other cases, if the patient, let's say a patient is very high functioning and they have no problems and their memories, all their memory is great. The tumor is in a spot that if they take it out, it might impact some important cognitive function. You know, let's say the person's a physician or a physicist or a chemist or an engineer or or just anybody whose brain is doing just fine is now told that that the doctor may want to cut out or take out part of their brain. 
naturally, if there's if there's no pre-existing impairment from the tumor itself, then you've got to start asking, is this worth it? And I think that in many cases, that it depends on what's going on, but the neurosurgeon might say, let's wait and watch and see if it even grows. There might be other alternatives, like for example, maybe they'll try chemotherapy or focused radiation therapy. You know, that's where it really gets in the thick of what we want to do. And I think that's really the uh, an ex, you know, there's excellent clinicians in various places. And at Yale, we have some very good ones that are very good at detecting what can be taken out. So they might take out part of it, but leave in part, which sounds scary, but it might be that if they leave in that part, there's a low risk for recurrence. So there's many factors taken into account. And believe me, when um, the neurosurgeon has that meeting with the patients, they have looked at all different options. And I have to say that the ones that I work with are very thoughtful and very much do not just say, okay, let's take it out. Unless of course it's, it's vital for their life. Um, you know, so it does depend on the type, but yes, there's many ways that we can be careful to reduce the risk after surgery. So how exactly does that happen? I mean, when we think about, you know, the neurosurgeon going in there to take out part of the brain um, where the tumor is, but, you know, making sure that they don't damage other parts of the brain that the tumor might be next to, uh, that if they they do take uh, out or, or damage that area that the patient could be left with um, severe uh, deformities in terms of, you know, their memory or their cognition or their language skills. Um, it, can the surgeons actually see which area is which or do they need fancy imaging or is there a way that um, that's done um you know, while patients are awake, I know that uh, we've all seen kind of uh, uh, shows on on people taking care of seizures with patients awake. How, how does that happen for patients with cancer? So this is a great question. And there's a lot of tools that are now used before the surgeon even goes in. They have all this kinds of data ahead of time. They've done different kinds of MRIs. There's a kind of MRI called diffuse and tensure imaging, which actually tracks the pathways in the brain because one of the biggest risks with surgery is if they if they hit a pathway, they might not hit the center for some kinds of thinking, but if you hit the wrong pathway, you know, it could cause some pretty global problems. So with all the imaging data that's available today, there are many ways that before they even go in, they already have an idea of what they're going to do. And I would say that I can't speak for them, but in the, in the team meetings that I've been part of, pretty much they have an idea, the surgeon has a very good idea of exactly what they're going to take out before they ever go in. Now, sometimes once they're in, they'll find the tumor is more extensive or has something more of a problem, but they're, they're very careful, you know, and that's, and that's really the key. Now, the other piece is sometimes there is uh, a wake, uh, intraoperative mapping, it's called. And that means the patient's actually kept awake and someone like myself or other providers or even the surgeon will talk to the patient while doing the surgery to kind of predict what's going to happen. And there might, they might even use a little stimulation to kind of determine, okay, if we, you know, and they'll stimulate the area around the tumor to find out if they stimulate certain parts, does it stop language? Does language continue? So sometimes during the actual procedure, the patient will be awake 
and the areas around the tumor would be stimulated to find out what would impact the impact would be if that part was taken out. So it's really quite amazing what what they do in the neurosurgery suite during these cases. And now there's all kinds of newer tools. There's um, laser ablation therapy where they'll take a laser and it's like a same day procedure where they, the next day they're home. Um, and of course there's the radiation types, but, but there are a lot of different ways now that the surgeon has to really know exactly what they're going to do before they go in. And so we will work with them. We will have them do what's called a functional MRI which maps where different language and other cognitive functions might be occurring. Uh, we'll do our testing to kind of find out, okay, that tumor is in this area of the brain. It would affect this function. Let's see how that function is working now. Let's predict what's going to happen afterwards. So it's really by the time they go into surgery, unless it's an emergency situation, there is a lot of planning and they pretty much know with a fairly good certainty what's going to happen before the surgery even occurs. That way the patient and their family can be talked to about, okay, here's what to expect. Now, of course, every once in a while there might be a surprise and that's always a risk, but many times that we really strive so they know what to expect before it even happens. Yeah. I mean, it really is cool how, how far surgery and technology has come. It's kind of, uh, it's kind of weird to think about having somebody take out a brain tumor with you being awake. But on the other hand, it really is, uh, pretty cool that, you know, you can, you, you can give the surgeon real time feedback of, you know, if you go in that spot, I'm going to stop talking. And if you go in that spot, I'm going to start shaking and, and so on. Um, you mentioned things like, uh, laser and radiation. Um, are those more or less toxic to your brain in terms of causing side effects uh, in terms of ablating tumors? I mean, are they better in terms of reducing the cognitive side effects of, of having your cancer treated? Well, I know more about laser ablation from the epilepsy patients that, that I'm part of seeing. And I know that in the research, a good friend of mine, there's a lot of these at another institution, and they have a large data set of patients, and they find that the laser ablation has very has the least cognitive side effects afterwards. And we've actually learned that the laser ablation, you could take out parts that in a, in a traditional surgery, it would have damaged the surrounding area, but laser ablation might be able to pinpoint a very precise location. So that actually has fewer cognitive risks. Um, and in terms of radiation, you know, there's more focused beam radiation that they use now. They used to use whole brain radiation, which was not good because that would affect the whole brain, as it, as the name implies. It's a whole brain radiation would impact the cognition in a larger degree, whereas focused beam radiation would affect that area. Now, the risk to radiation is that it's not just the time that's being used, but there's also after effects. So the radiation might continue to affect the area of the brain. So some of the cognition might actually decline a little bit after the surgery, after the radiation is even over down the road, you can have a little bit of decline in that immediate area. So yeah, go ahead. (laughs) No, sorry. So this is uh, really fascinating in terms of how, uh, how we can influence uh, our cognition while still taking care of brain tumors. We need to take a short break for a medical minute, but we'll learn more right after this break uh, with my guest, Dr. Franklin Brown. 
Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business with a deep-rooted heritage in oncology and a commitment to developing cancer medicines for patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about pancreatic cancer, which represents about 3% of all cancers in the U.S. and about 7% of cancer deaths. Clinical trials are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers for the treatment of advanced stage and metastatic pancreatic cancer using chemotherapy and other novel therapies. Fulfirinox, a combination of five different chemotherapies, is the latest advance in the treatment of metastatic pancreatic cancer, and research continues at centers around the world looking into targeted therapies and a recently discovered marker, HENT1. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Franklin Brown. We're talking about neuropsychology and brain cancer. And right before the break, Franklin, we were talking a little bit about surgery uh, versus radiation, which can be focused, or even lasers, which can be perhaps even more focused, where, you know, we can really address brain cancers without affecting the entire brain. Um now, the the other modality, of course, that uh, is sometimes used is is chemotherapy, and you know, chemotherapy can affect your brain too. Uh, a lot of people talk about um, chemo brain. Can you talk a little bit about how exactly does chemotherapy affect your brain? I mean, it's certainly not a structural thing of taking actual brain tissue out, but it seems to still affect people's cognition. Well, sure. And in fact, chemo, chemotherapy, while it's important, can leave cognitive effects regardless of the type of tumor. So we've been talking regardless of the type of cancer. So we're talking about brain tumors, but in any kind of cancer that chemotherapy is used, it can cross a blood-brain barrier and affect the brain. Now, the way this typically happens is in the brain, there's what's called the gray matter, which is where our actual thinking cells, for lack of a better term, would be located. But then there's what's called the white matter, which connects the different parts of the brain together. And that white matter is very important for functioning, but also for functioning efficiently. So let's say that um, the chemotherapy, because it affects the person's general health, this affects white matter more than gray matter. In fact, it tends to target white matter because white matter is affected by the body's health. So you have the white matter that gets affected by chemotherapy. And afterwards, patients have, they'll, they'll say they feel foggy. They'll say they can't focus very well. They're complaining of memory problems. And it really comes down to the brain not communicating efficiently anymore. And so it's it, there's different networks in the brain. So let's say the actual, like I said, the brain centers might be intact, but the communication between those centers are slowed down. Therefore, it gets out of sync. So imagine one way to imagine this is like if you're very tired. Let's say that you only got a few hours sleep the night before. And the next day, you're feeling kind of foggy. You can't think as well. Your mind might wander. 
you know, all those things that you feel when you're very tired. And in a way, this is kind of what chemotherapy does to the brain. Because it makes it less efficient, your brain, it takes a lot more effort to do things. So this, this will result in the person feeling tired, unfocused, you know, other factors that make them less able to pay attention to what's going on. So cognitive efficiency, and actually it's one of my areas of interest, is, is very vital for thinking, paying attention, finding words and other actions that are required that chemotherapy affects. So, you know, having thought about that, right, so especially when there is some time to prepare, right? So usually, um, regardless of whether somebody is taking out a piece of brain uh, from a, a brain tumor or planning some focused radiation or whether you're going to be getting some chemotherapy, uh, for brain cancer or any other cancer for that matter, um, oftentimes there's some preparatory work that goes into that. And we had talked before the break about, you know, certainly in preparation for brain surgery to remove tumors, that there's functional MRIs and so on and so forth. So you have some time. Now, I can imagine that a lot of people who might be listening to this show might be asking themselves, you know, is there something I can do? In that period of time, when I know that my brain is going to be affected by whatever treatment is to come, is there something that I can do to help myself preserve some of my cognition? You know, whether that is a particularly uh, a particular diet that I should be eating or particular vitamins that I should be taking or whether I should be doing more crossword puzzles and trying to keep my brain active. Like what advice do you have or is there any advice um, for helping people to kind of shore up their their brain power, their cognition um, to best withstand the insult that is about to occur? Well, one of the things that a lot of people may not realize is that your brain health, things that make your brain healthy are the same things that make your heart healthy. And in fact, there's a big connection between brain health and heart health. In other words, if someone's, if someone's cardiovascular system is, is at risk, then their brain function can be at risk, which is a whole other topic. But I think that one of the big things is the healthier a person is going into a a therapeutic situation like chemotherapy or radiation or, or whatever, the better their outcome generally. So this means that if the person is someone that exercises fairly regularly, eats fairly healthy, and you know does other things like that, then they're going to be at lower risk in general after surgery for cognitive problems than people that, let's say, are less healthy that might have some medical risk factors like high blood pressure, high cholesterol. Maybe they don't exercise really. Maybe they're overweight. You know, there's all these things that the more of these problems that occur, the higher risk your brain is for for not being as healthy, both before and then after a surgery. Um, Sleep is also very important. So following good sleep hygiene recommendations is important. But if you have someone that doesn't exercise, someone that doesn't sleep well, maybe they work long hours. You know, these are all things that, that when you think of health, the more, the less healthy a person is, the more cognitive risks they have and vice versa. Hmm. So definitely that affects it. The other thing is also mood. Um, 
you know, it can be very upsetting to find out someone has cancer and that can affect the person pretty rapidly. So the other thing is, how do you keep your mood up? Now, of course, there are antidepressants and things like that, but I'm actually a big, a big believer in therapy. And so I really think that when someone gets diagnosed with cancer, to me, I mean, maybe I'm biased, but from my perspective, they, if they could all have access to a counselor at their time and after their diagnosis to help them reframe their way of thinking, deal with their anxiety, so they can decrease depression and anxiety going into it, they're going to be in better off shape when they come out of it. So things like that are very important. And, and I mentioned sleep briefly. There is growing evidence that sleep definitely affects the brain functioning, whether it's long-term, for example, sleep, chronic sleep problems are associated with a higher risk of Alzheimer's disease, or whether it's short-term or just the immediate effects of fatigue. Obviously, if someone's having chronic sleep problems, they're going to be more fatigued and have more difficulty focusing. Those things are also really important for recovery from any kind of, uh, whether it's a direct brain resection, radiation therapy, or chemotherapy. So those are the things that I think in the ideal world, if we could really help the patients go into it healthy, focus on it in a healthy way, help, help deal with feelings of depression and anxiety, they're going to come out, with it, out of it much better. So it definitely, there are ways that, that you can improve a person's outcome and their risks. Yeah. You know, all of that makes me think about stress as well. And, and, you know, the, the, uh, the kind of correlations between stress and inflammation and, and cancer in general. Um, but it sounds like, um, kind of regulating your stress might, might be helpful in terms of preserving your brain function as well. Are, are there data on that and, and any particular things in terms of, uh, stress reduction, whether it be meditation or you certainly mentioned exercise. Right. So absolutely. Stress is definitely can be toxic to the brain. Um, that, there's been in decades past, there's a lot of research on stress and anxiety in the brain. And there, it actually, stress levels can actually impact the size and volume of a memory center of the brain called the hippocampus. There were studies that they did in the, in the 80s and 90s where they actually found that people with higher levels of stress will have smaller memory centers like the hippocampus. And then after they get treatment for that stress, the MRI actually shows some rebounding of the size, which really? seems unbelievable, but wow. is amazing. So absolutely, you know, um, stress is such an important thing to help cope with. And I think that, you know, when someone's uh, here to get diagnosed with cancer, their focus might just be on, okay, I want to I survive, I want to be healthy. But the way they survive and the way they feel is absolutely vital. So things like, obviously, just, you know, talking therapy is certainly a helpful thing. Uh, mindfulness meditation, or some people also do well with what's called cognitive imagery, where they're asked to imagine a situation. So they calm down and imagine it working out in a certain way. There's been studies in various areas that find that guided imagery where a person imagines their outcome seems to produce a sense of better self-control and, and a better locus of control, which seems to help their outcomes. You know, so definitely the level of stress is very important. And the more we can treat that, 
and reduce the level of stress before and after surgery, the better the outcome. And of course, the better the quality of life. You know, if someone's feeling depressed and they feel like they're hopeless and they feel like there's no way out and they, they look at their health and they just can't imagine that it's going to work out, they're not going to do well no matter what. Yeah. And versus someone that has an optimistic viewpoint and says, okay, well, this is not a big deal. The doctor said that this can work and I know it's going to work fine. And they imagine it's going to work. It's really remarkable, the difference in outcomes. Yeah, so, and, and that's where I think important. that that talk therapy can really help that you mentioned. Yes. So there's a kind of therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy. And um, that's when people, when the, when the provider works on helping the person to reframe their thinking. So maybe they could take something and instead of thinking negatively, negatively about it, think more positively. And in fact, just to give you an example of a different area um, in multiple sclerosis, which also affects white matter. Um, and I mentioned chemotherapy affects white matter. There's actually evidence that people that have multiple sclerosis who go through cognitive behavioral therapy have fewer relapses and their, and their white matter looks better. So there is definitely evidence that talk therapy, guided imagery, relaxation, meditation, sleeping well, eating well, and healthy exercise are very helpful. Uh, and in cancer, there's actually some, some empirical data that exercise helps recovery, uh, cognitive remediation, which is like like things like speech therapy or or focus therapy to help someone's memory or compensation strategies. All these things have been found empirically to help the outcomes of people that go through chemotherapy. Yeah, but definitely stress. I think is definitely an underlying factor in all these interventions. Dr. Franklin Brown is an assistant professor of neurology and chief of the division of neuropsychology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.